Hello and welcome to The Lancet Podcast. I'm Richard Lane on Thursday, September the 8th. Today we publish a comprehensive review looking at statins. They've been quite controversial over the past few years and we publish a review which is looking at the totality of evidence, particularly of randomised evidence, concerning their safety and efficacy. It is also the subject of our offline column in the upcoming issue of The Lancet, dated September the 10th, written by our editor, Dr Richard Horton. But earlier, I spoke to the author of the review, Professor Rory Collins, who joined me on the line from the University of Oxford, UK. Welcome, Professor Collins. Nice to speak to you. Thank you very much, Richard. Cast our mind back. We want to focus on the here and now uh, because a lot's been happening in the world of statins since we published the heart protection study back in 2002. But my memory, looking back and having a quick look at that paper again, that was a landmark moment, wasn't it, in, in the whole statins debate? Well, when one thinks about statins, I think one has to go further back than that. It's been known for decades that there are associations in populations between level of cholesterol and the risk of coronary heart disease. The higher the cholesterol in a population, the higher the risk of heart disease. But there was quite a lot of controversy before the statins arrived on the scene as to whether lowering cholesterol would be beneficial. That was, was cholesterol really causally related to coronary heart disease? There were randomized trials of older drugs, and of diets and even of ileal bypass surgery that um, indicated that if you lowered cholesterol, then you did lower the risk of coronary artery disease. But these interventions were not very powerful at lowering cholesterol. And the trials that were done also raised concerns that lowering cholesterol might have some adverse effects that um, might increase the risk of, of death from particular causes other than cardiovascular, might uh, cause uh, cancers. One of the thoughts was that this was because those trials had been too small to assess the effect of those cholesterol interventions. What the statins provided was a fantastic opportunity to test whether really lowering cholesterol substantially both lowered the risk of cardiovascular events, but also did so safely. And that's really what has come through from trials like the heart protection study with uh, the statins we were able to, within the trials, lower cholesterol by uh, one millimole, maintain that for five years or so. And in the heart protection study, the 4S study, which preceded it, and 20 or 30 major trials of statins over the, the last few decades, we've shown that five years of lowering cholesterol by about a millimole with statin therapy lowers the risk of cardiovascular events by about one quarter and has no adverse effects on other causes of death or on cancer, which was the, the concern that people had about lowering cholesterol in the past. But yet, since, um, certainly since the heart protection study, over the past decade or so, and particularly in the past two or three years, there's been a lot of controversy out there, particularly in the UK public health, concerning the safety of statins. And without going to all the details of that, it's important to say that the main focus of your review that we're publishing is you're looking very much at the whole business of the research methodology. That's very much at the heart of what you're saying in review, isn't it? It's understanding what different types of research can and cannot do, understanding the limitations of research. Yes, so there are really two major kinds of studies that are used in, in epidemiology to, to study the associations of if you like, risk factors with disease. So the non-randomized observational studies, which um, 
generated the hypothesis that cholesterol, higher cholesterol levels might lead to higher rates of coronary artery disease, and then the randomized controlled trial. And the problems that have been caused over the last few years is the failure to understand the limitations of non-randomized observational studies. And as a consequence, this has led to claims that statins cause uh, side effects uh, very commonly. And the problem there is about misattribution. So observational studies, non-randomized studies, are, are fine for picking up big effects on rare outcomes. So we take the classic example of, of smoking and lung cancer. People like Bradford Hill and Richard Doll started to study that because a condition that had been rare, lung cancer, was increasing very rapidly. There was an epidemic developing. And what they found was that there was a single cause that produced a very big increase in that relative, what was a rare outcome. But if you're not looking for big effects and you're not looking at effects on rare outcomes, then observational studies um, are really problematic in that you have two major issues. One is when you compare the people with the risk factor versus the ones without. So let's take comparing people who are taking a statin in normal practice with the ones who are not taking a statin in normal practice. The patients differ. They differ in their underlying risk of having uh, adverse outcomes. And of course, people are very aware of that. They're aware of the advantages of randomized controlled trial, where by randomization, you end up with two or more groups of individuals who differ only randomly from each other in terms of all of their underlying risk factors. With observational studies, people think, well, maybe I can get a big enough computer or a smart enough statistician, and I can adjust for those differences. And the problem is you can only adjust for the differences that you know. So if you have um, error in the measurement of your differences or you haven't measured differences between the people who are or are not getting the statin or the people who are or are not taking vitamins or whatever the, the, the risk factor the one is looking at, then you can't be sure that you have adjusted adequately for the differences between the two groups. And, and again, that's relatively well recognized. The particular problem in the case of statins is that there is a second potential source of bias, and that relates to assessment of outcomes. So a, an observational study where you compare people who are taking a drug with people who are not taking a drug, the ones who are taking the drug and their doctors know that they're taking it. In fact, when you go to see your doctor about statin, the doctor will say, look, there is this very rare complication of myopathy, muscle problems, but it occurs very rarely. If you get some muscle problems, let me know. But the doctor is prompting the patient to be aware of a potential complication, and then the patient goes away and is more likely to report muscle problems than the patient's who've not been given a statin, who are, of course, not being given such advice. These ascertainment biases in observational studies can't be protected against by blinding, by masking who is and who is not getting the active treatment. Whereas in a randomized trial with, with masking by a placebo, you get rid of both the differences between the patient groups in terms of their underlying risk and the differences in the ascertainment of the health outcomes, the reporting and the recording of the health outcomes between the groups. And it's the failure to recognize those two important differences between randomized trials and observational studies that has led 
in my view, to much of the controversy. People talk about, well, we need to know about the effects of the statins in the real world. And they talk about looking in these observational studies within databases of treatment being used in routine care. The reality is that the randomized trials tell us unbiasedly about what happens in the real world. And the observational studies are fraught with biases, either due to differences between the people who do and don't get the drug, or in differences between the reporting between those groups. And in your review, you do go through systematically, uh, in turn, don't you, looking at possible side effects, side effects that have been reported in observational studies, such as possible links with type 2 diabetes, cognitive impairment, visual impairment. It's a nice example, though, of the diabetes. So the randomized trials do indicate that uh, statin therapy or cholesterol-lowering therapy, we can't, we can't distinguish as yet as to which it is, is associated with a small increase in diabetes. Whether that has much clinical significance is more questionable because, of course, one of the concerns about diabetes is that it might increase your risk of cardiovascular events and lowering cholesterol and using statins lower your risk of cardiovascular events. But the randomized trials have indicated quite clearly that there is a very small increase in diabetes. Until the trials did that, the observational studies hadn't picked up that small increase in a relatively common outcome. After the randomized trials had picked it up, people then went and published observational studies and said, oh yeah, we can see the same thing in the observational studies. But they're not much use then, are they? The randomized trials have told us the answer. The observational yeah. studies are just a waste of paper. Yeah. Um, if, it was the other, if it was the other way around, that might have been more interesting. Well, uh, yes. Um, and there are lots of examples of it being the other way around where observational studies have suggested associations that the randomized trials have refuted. But the reason I give the diabetes is that it demonstrates the power of the randomized controlled trials to pick up unexpected adverse events, adverse effects of treatment. And part of the controversy over the last few years is people being saying, well, the randomized trials weren't designed to pick up the side effects or the randomized trials aren't sensitive or they weren't specific. And the fact of the matter is that the diabetes is a beautiful example of a completely unanticipated adverse effect of treatment that was picked up by the randomized trials and not picked up through real-world analyses until the people who do those analyses of observational studies knew what to look for. Indeed. So it is an endorsement of the sensitivity of randomized controlled trials compared with the observational data. In summary, in your view, clinically, do we know any more or is there any difference in what we know about the effect of statins now in 2016 that we knew back in 2002, other than the diabetes issue that you've just mentioned? Well, I think that what's been extraordinary about the whole of the evaluation of statins is that it wasn't just a single paper in 2002, the heart protection study, or the 4S study, which um, predated that, or lipid, or um, uh, care, but this very large number of different randomized controlled trials in a very wide range of different types of patients. So in secondary prevention, in people with coronary disease, in people with cerebrovascular disease, in people with diabetes, 
the ASCOT trial in hypertension, and then a number of trials in primary prevention, including trials like the PROSPER trial in the elderly. And it's that which I think makes the statin evidence really unusually reliable in terms of its generalizability, because we have information about the effects, both good and bad, of statins in very wide range of different types of a patient, young and old, male or female, higher and lower risk, and it's incredibly consistent. So I, I think that um, it's that very large amount of very well-controlled, randomized evidence that provides us with much more security than we had in 2002 about the, the magnitude of the benefits and about they, how they far outweigh the modest hazards in terms of myopathy, which we knew about then and hasn't changed much, diabetes, and probably what's emerged by combining all of the data is a, a, a probable small increase in hemorrhagic stroke, but one which is far outweighed by the reductions in ischemic strokes and other uh, major vascular events. So the change from 2002 to now is far greater certainty and far greater generalizability both about the magnitude of the benefits and about the, uh, how they far outweigh the small hazards. A couple of final things. There are a number of statins on the market, aren't there? We're not, not just um, simvastatin, which is the, the one that's familiar to people who know the heart protection study. What do the different statins do? Do they have a different mode of action? Are they used in different groups? They're pretty much the same in terms of their, their mode of action. I mean, people discuss differences in terms of do they dissolve in fat or not and things like that. The main thing is that the, the newer statins, atorvastatin and rosuvastatin, lower LDL cholesterol to a greater extent than the older statins, such as pravastatin and simvastatin. So you can get a bigger reduction in LDL cholesterol. And what the trials have shown is that uh, the bigger the reduction in LDL cholesterol, the bigger the reduction in your risk of heart attacks and strokes. What that also means is that you can use a dose of the newer agents that is kind of further away from a dose that can produce an increased rate of myopathy. So, for example, with simvastatin, 20 to 40 milligrams of simvastatin has a very, very low rate of myopathy, about 1 per 10,000 per annum. But if you go up to 80 milligrams, the rate of myopathy increases to about 1 per 1,000 per annum. So there's a tenfold increase as you go from 20 to 40 up to 80. And we demonstrated that in the follow-up trial from the heart protection study, the SEARCH trial. Now, the reason for, for going to those higher doses is you're trying to get a bigger reduction in LDL cholesterol. But you can get that bigger reduction in LDL cholesterol by using one of the newer agents without having to push it to the extent where uh, it might be associated with an increase risk of myopathy, because myopathy seems to be related to the amount of drug in, in the blood. Atorvastatin and rosuvastatin, the two newer agents. Atorvastatin is now generic, uh, so you know, one month of, say, 40 milligrams of atorvastatin costs less than two pounds a month in the UK. And rosuvastatin has become a generic, or has come off patent anyway, in 2016 in the US. So presumably we should be seeing reductions in the cost of that as it becomes a generic.
Yes, that was the final question I was going to put you actually. The whole cost issue and, and the whole patent issue, given that they have been around a while. That's important, isn't it, for, for global health, particularly in countries with poorer or weaker health systems. And we know there's a burden of cardiovascular disease often in poorer or emerging economies. So the fact that, that statins are becoming cheaper through generics is important, isn't it, in other populations? I think not just cheaper, but if you think about cost effectiveness, and this was part of what drove the NICE to, to lower their levels of cardiovascular risk at which they thought it was appropriate for the NHS to offer statins to um, people in primary prevention. We have this evidence that each one millimole reduction in LDL cholesterol lowers your risk by a quarter. So if you lower your LDL by around two millimoles, which you can you really do with, say, a 12 statin 40 milligrams, which halves your LDL cholesterol, then you'll lower your risk by nearly a half. And in people who've already had cardiovascular events, had a heart attack or stroke, or people who are considered to be at high risk because of other risk factors such as age or diabetes or hypertension, the use of statin is cost-saving for the health services. The drug cost is really minimal, but not only are you saving people from having heart attacks and strokes, which can be either disabling or, or um, fatal, but you're saving the health service from all of the treatment costs and of course the, um, the, the costs subsequent to that. You know, somebody having a stroke is very expensive in the long term. So for health services, when it's two pounds a month, it becomes a great deal for patients, the public, uh, and for the um, the government. Absolutely. Very important point. I'm glad, glad we discussed that. It's a fascinating discussion, and it's a really interesting read. And I do urge everyone to look out for Rory Collins' review that we're publishing September the 8th. In the meantime, Rory Collins on the line from Oxford. Many thanks indeed for discussing your paper with The Lancet. Thanks very much, Richard. Nice to talk to you.